Hello, Hi. poor chat 10 listeners. What? I just feel ashamed of myself. I don't even, who are you? <laughs> just, we are very sorry that we have taken about two months. <laughs> it's just been a stupidly long time, hasn't it? I know, and I feel like our chat 10 listeners are so lovely, and whenever people come up to me in the street or send me a tweet or whatever, they are always so nice, and I think all I need to do is give them a half-hour episode every now and again, and we failed dismally. I think what you need is, more of a, is another source of guilt in your life. So, I think so, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Like arrived. Absolutely. Um, I love how yesterday, like, we've, been, we've actually been trying to get together for a few weeks, and... Every time something happens, like you get some horrendous bout of gastro or I've got to bugger off to some regional location or something. And um, yesterday, I was so tired because we've been shooting for about, I don't know, like three weeks in a row without any days off. I was just losing my mind a little bit. And so I sent you three text messages in the space of one hour with entirely conflicting suggestions about what time we should meet. And then as I said the last one, I suddenly remembered that you were in an interview with David Petraeus. <laughs> and I picture of you with this guy just going, bing, 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 bing. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Oh, I think at the end I ended up sending a sort of, you know, Kurt, I'll call you back when I'm finished interviewing the former head of the CIA. <laughs> Could you imagine? Excuse me, General Petraeus, I've just got to deal with these requests about my baking podcast that I do. Um, I also thought it was very funny yesterday when, because we've been so desperately trying to find a slot where we would both be in the same location together, that we've somehow stumbled across this thing that we're both amazingly going to be at the theatre on Saturday night seeing the same thing and you said we should record a podcast in interval <laughs> and then followed it up with another text going oh we're turning into like a couple of saddies who are having an affair at work <laughs> constantly trying to find opportunities to meet in the priest hall exactly <laughs> which is where we are today hello Indeed. priest hall so sorry um listeners that we've been so incredibly slack and we'll try to make it up to you now I wanted to say first of all I have been sent a couple of things from Chat 10 Looks 3 listeners, which is so nice. Did that nice. enhance your guilt? Yes. They've been sitting on my desk, and I didn't even have the common courtesy to send them a personal email of thanks, which I rectified yesterday. But So I've brought them to tell you about because you haven't seen them. One is this gorgeous um, baking book called Miette, Recipes from San Francisco's Most Charming Pastry Shop. Oh, and it's the most... I've got the one from, from San Francisco's Second Most Charming Pastry <laughs> Shop, but I've been really... Oh, my goodness. I know. It's very, wow. very nice. That's a, okay, just to, just to fill this in, the entire book has scalloped pages. I know, it's very pretty. The edges of the pages are scalloped. And lots of beautiful pictures of scalloped. cakes. And so let me tell you what the story is about this. So we got this lovely letter also from, I won't say his surname, but it's from Natalie, um, on some lovely, look at the paper, lovely cupcakes oh, all over it. Nice. And I'll let me read it to you. Um, Earl J. McNabb and Tabitha Whisper Sword. <laughs> <laughs> For people that just wonder what that's about, see previous episodes. Um, Truly, there are no better pseudonyms for the two women who have transformed my morning commute to work. And in case you haven't yet posted your new podcast, circa 30th of July, oh, God, 2015. Yes, I have embarrassingly refreshed the Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast feed approximately 17 times in the last 48 hours, so please hurry. Now, I'm feeling really bad now because... Okay, just, just, so just build a bridge All right. and okay, get, over. get over it. Ordinarily, I would just leave a gushing post on Facebook or contribute a five-star iTunes review. Brendan, I've done it, I promise. But my husband and I are currently in the middle of moving, well, packing to move, to San Francisco, where he will be gainfully employed at a tech Whoa. startup, and I will embark on my first period of fun employment in 10 years. But I digress in the true spirit of the podcast. <laughs> 
in the midst of my cleaning, I found one, this fabulous paper, which inspired me to handwrite you both a letter, and two, a fabulous cookbook for which I'll no longer have any use as oh, I'll be walking distance God. from this bakery very soon. So please consider this my contribution to the Chat 10 Looks 3 Fangirl gift box. I hope you both have a chance to try a recipe or two. And then Whoa. it goes on another page of how awesome we are, this so I'll leave like it for you to read. So, I'm, I'm completely into this already, having just cracked it open. I mean, I was, you know, it had me at sculpt pages. But <laughs> yeah, I, I know, say. same. So, Natalie, awesome. How good are you, Natalie? Thank you, Natalie. That was really, really nice. And also... And how lucky are you moving to San Francisco as well? And living walking distance from this cake yeah. shop. Now, also, I have um, a note and a book that was sent to me, and I Carefully secure the lady fingers around <laughs> the sides of the cake. My lady That's fingers are usually <laughs> secured around the sides <laughs> of the cake. That's right. They are your lady fingers. Um, oh. So this, I stupidly threw out the envelope, so I don't have this person's last name or address to send them a note, but it's Caroline. Caroline. Yeah, mm -hmm. so Caroline, no surname. Caroline, because we're all about, I like friendships and stuff, so, and friends who are nice to each other. Caroline has sent me a copy of the book written by her good friend, Charlotte Wood. It's called The Natural Way of Things, and she sent it to me to say, my friend has written this awesome book, and I heard you in Crab at Sydney Writers Festival, and I really want you to read it because my friend is fantastic. And blah, blah, blah. So that was very Well, nice. I like a friend that sends one's books out because we had a bit of a funny thing last week um, where... We went to Elizabeth Broderick's, well, we, I say we went to Elizabeth Broderick's, Broderick's Male cha Champions of Change lunch. You were actually emceeing it. I was. <laughs> I sent you one of my stupid last minute te texts saying, are you going to this lunch? Are you, are you there yet? She's like, crap, I'm emceeing. I'm already wired up. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. see you there then. Um, but uh, Ian Narev, who's the CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, um, mentioned in his speech that um, about a year ago, he got a parcel from Lee Sales, and it was my book, which you, very brilliantly and very loyally, went and bought a thousand copies of and packaged it up and made me sign them and sent them <laughs> off to influential people. And I remember is... you, your sort of horror when I was just shamelessly, so I was going, can you inscribe this one? It's for Ian Narev. Can you inscribe this one? It's for Alan Joyce. And you're just like, oh my God, are you really sending it to these people? Like, yes, I really am. <laughs> oh, that really paid off. That was the mark. Do you know what, what bothered me though when, so Ian Narev in his speech said how he had read your book and thought it was absolutely brilliant and how it transformed their thinking in the Commonwealth Bank about, um, you know, how to help women with their careers and whatnot. But do you know what was funny? Because in that room were, it was an amazing room full of CEOs. And so many of the other CEOs who I had bombarded your book were also in that room. And I was thinking, oh no, now David Thody and Alan Joyce are realizing they're not special. <laughs> They weren't the only person that I sent a book to. Did you slip little notes in saying, this is only for you? No, only but I, you. I, they, I did put personalised notes with them about why did. I thought... You're you know, outrageous. Yeah, I know. You are a great friend. Thank you. It's all right. So anyway, so also Caroline is a great friend. I could so do Caroline. the same thing with my cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Alan Joyce. <laughs> Don't miss out on the ginger fluff. <laughs> Oh, actually, no. Dear Alan, I was on a flight recently between Adelaide and Brisbane and I thought that the quality of these snacks was less than adequate. You might like to try page 48 of Crab Spicy Nuts. <laughs> um, so, Caroline, that's really nice of you that you sent your friend Charlotte Wood's book. And Charlotte Wood, you've got a good friend in Caroline. Yes, and also, let's both read that book. It looks good. Now, let's... So, the reason that we have been so ridiculously busy, so you have been... I've been uh, shooting our new series of Kitchen Cabinet, which is going to be on air, well, let's just say disconcertingly soon, given that we haven't finished making it yet. <laughs> Not like me, it'll work last minute. Uh, it's it's going to be great, actually. It's going to be very cool. Um, we've been 
far and wide, and there are some great people. Very good. So you, that's why I've been I've been you know nonstop in other locales, nonstop traveling around the country, and then doing other bits and pieces in between. And then I have been doing hosting the seven thirty report filming a documentary and also buying a house and selling my house. Yeah. So just every, it's basically two full-time jobs and then just trying to raise my family. <laughs> so I'm having a nervous breakdown. So have you done a lot of chucking things away? I am you're a chucker. A anyway. chucker. Yeah. I love chucking. There's actually not that much to chuck because I'm such a religious chucker of stuff. Yeah. So there's a bit of stuff to chuck. Do you know what's a big issue do I keep all of my books and move them to my new house or mm. do I get rid of them? And I'm tempted to get rid of a lot because I am reading so much stuff electronically these days. <sighs> I can't even look at I you. know, you were going to be upset about that. My house is just absolute, like there's just piles. It actually, in a couple of years, it's actually going to look like one of those crazy bookshops in Charing Cross where you can't actually get in. <laughs> There's like somewhere in the middle of these tottering piles is a guy with a beard and a kind of like jumper with holes in the elbows sitting there thinking, why doesn't anyone come into my shop? You stopped being able to get into it about three months ago, dude. But he's the like, sort of bloke that you'd go, do you have... Um I'm looking for a copy of the annotated version of Lewis Carroll's The Hunting of the Snark. Um, it's by Martin somebody or other. I just can't remember. He also wrote Go to Leisure Bark, and the guy's like, yes, and he'll just yeah. lead you straight to Which it. Which translation? <laughs> yeah. Leads you straight to it at the bottom of a dusty pile of something completely unrelated. I love those to it. bookshops, but my house looks like one of them, which is um, unfortunate. But, you know, I have these nightmares, particularly when people send you books. Um, have a nightmare that if I put them in a box outside my house, someone will walk along and see their book in a box outside my house and go, oh, well, that's very nice, isn't it? <laughs> I know that realistically that would never happen. <laughs> what about an inscribed one? Like, what? Oh, man, oh, I've got a whole shelf of inscribed ones that I can never throw out. Yeah. You have to burn them, and I'm opposed to that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. Don't tell me you throw out inscribed ones. <gasps> yeah. You're a monster. Do you know what I did and I really regret? You threw oh, out my book that I inscribed This is a terrible, no, this is a terrible um, confession and I hope Tony Abbott doesn't listen to the podcast. So years ago when Battle Lines came out. You can say something rude about him <laughs> and you can say something rude about Dyson Hayden and I'll never get to this podcast. <laughs> listen to my ego. I hope the Prime Minister doesn't listen to yeah, our podcast. He might have one or two other things to do, like, you know. Bomb Syria. So um, he, when Battle Lines came out, he gave me a, um, I think I was hosting late at the time, he gave me a, you know, two Lee from Tony, blah, blah, blah. And when I was doing one of my regular chuckouts, I looked at it, this was before he was opposition leader, I looked at it and thought, ah, oh, if I need that in the future, I can get it. Tony's never going to be Prime Minister. I don't really need an inscribed copy of his book. And I turned it. Yes. And I've regretted it very much. You idiot. I've got my signed copy actually in this office somewhere. I've got it around. Somewhere. Well, also because I, I actually... can't read the inscription because, you know, he has the worst handwriting of anybody I've ever met. Tony Habit oh. has, like, think your average GP to the factor of 10. Oh. He very kindly signed a book of his for my dad. Yeah. Um, and I said, thank you very much. Uh, took it home, gave, my, gave it to my dad for Christmas. And to this day... None of us knows what it says. <laughs> it's, 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 quite a, it's quite an extensive message. It probably just says, you know, get your ABC loving rat bag daughter. <laughs> Lefty comma daughter out of my face. Know. Or it would say congratulations on raising such a nice woman. I don't know. For some reason, my 18-month-old has picked up the saying, um, get that thing out of my face, right. except he can't say the whole sentence, of course, so he'll just have a bunny or something and then he doesn't want it. He throws it on the ground and goes, face! <laughs> 
really good. Yeah, it makes me laugh. Oh, I can't believe you threw out your your immortal Tony Abbott work. That's I know. Very funny. Yeah, well, I'm that not, should be a lesson to you. I'm not very sentimental on that sort of stuff, I'm afraid. You're not very um, sentimental about anything. No, I'm not really. Yeah. I'm got, I've got a, maybe three possessions that I'm sentimental about, but other than that, um, not really. But anyway, so I'm, yeah, so I'm sort of weighing up. And then I was looking at my books and thinking, okay, so then what would be the yardstick for, you know, what's the criteria on which you would keep a book then? So I thought things like I would keep my original The Enchanted Wood by Enid Blyton and my Magic Faraway Tree because they're some of the first books I've ever read and I've kept them. But for example, I kept all of my Anne of Green Gables that I read, but now I've had two sons. And so I assume mm. they're not going to read my Anne of Green Gables, but I can't really bear to get rid of them. Mm. So I don't know. But then looking at other books that I've really loved, like, say, um, Margaret Atwood, Alias Grace, mm -hmm. do I really need to own a hard copy of that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have an incapability of conceiving that I will ever find a book elsewhere. Also, if I'm, like, I work on a system of fear. And I know if I put some book out, I know, sure as eggs as eggs, that three to four days from my <laughs> decision to turf that book, I will be writing a column or something and I'll think, oh, that book. Yeah, right. And, you know, the, the, the little bits and bobs that I needed from that book, I won't be able to find. So that's my fear. Realistically, I know that the way I use books when I'm writing things is I sort of think of a line that was in that book. Oh, where was it in that book? Where was it? I grab the book, I go through it, I kind of enjoy it again by going through it again, and then I find the bit. Now, I know, thanks to Google Books, that you can find just about anything in any book that you've read, you know, if you can remember a couple of keywords. Why don't I remember things by where they were in the book, like where they were on the page? I can remember where the thing that I was looking for is. Mm. I know that I can probably get around most of these things, but it doesn't lessen my fear of that book not being there when I need it because I love that process of finding the book, finding the bit that you're looking for, seeing the rest of it as you glance through it and remembering why you loved it. You know, you can't do that with an e-book because you can't bloody page through. And have you ever tried to find, you know, assuming you have not had the foresight to, you know, bookmark it or do whatever things that I don't do and I'm sure you do um, in electronic books, Trying to flick through oh, and find impossible. something, it's just like it makes you just want to stab yourself in the eye with a rusty fork. I know. I must say the sort of homogenising experience of when everything is read on the Kindle and so it all looks the same and oh. so you don't have any sense of, oh, it was about a third of the way through and it was, you know, you might know where it is placed on the page, but it doesn't have any of that identity that helps mm. you find things. So, yeah, that is, that is problematic. But just because I read so much, I just feel like I, I can't space, you know, is a big problem. Yeah. Hey, speaking of great lines in books, I started reading on the weekend, We're All Completely Beside Ourselves. <gasps> yes. By well, Karen that, Joy Fowler. That creates a dilemma for me, but please, you first. Um, there was a line in it that I just loved so much where she was talking about her father's drinking and her mother's annoyance at it and how her father is trying to hide his drinking and the mother is constantly on his case about it. And she says, um, you know, it made me worry that their marriage was becoming the kind that Inspector Javert would have had with Jean Valjean. <laughs> That's such a funny book. I really, like, I plucked it out of nowhere. It was one of those books that I didn't... I mean, there was a huge, you know, excitement about it when it was published, which I typically, for me entirely missed and then I think I was just sort of poking around somewhere 
just looking for an unexpected novel to read and enjoy. And I just downloaded it on my e-reader mm. and just loved it. It's so funny mm. and original and well-observed. Um, and I just felt like clapping at a few places. Oh, good. But of course, this conversation for us is a terrible dilemma because I don't know where you are in the book. Right. So I don't know whether you have read the plot twist or not. I don't think because I no nothing. If you, if, you, no. if you don't know, then you haven't, haven't read, read it. it. Yeah, Which no, means definitely that not. I have now a feeling of deep joy and superiority. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say envy because sometimes when I have read a book that someone hasn't read and I know how pleasurable that particular book is, I envy them the fact that they are doing it for oh, the yeah. first time yeah. and just like getting that, that Steve Toltz. You know, yeah, that's yeah. right. Like I just I really felt like oh, this is Annabelle's going to have such a great time, you know, reading this book. So. But the, um, I want yeah. you to send me a text the second you get to the plot twist. <laughs> You'll okay. know when you get there. I'm sure I will. All right, yeah. I'll keep an eye it's out. It's a pretty it. good one. I was thinking with the line about um, Jean Valjean, which of course if I was organised but I'm just too busy, would have been a perfect opportunity for a show tune. Da -de -da -de -da -de -da -da. I was thinking up. about um, Russell Crowe in Les Miserables with that... Um, there's, I don't know if I'm remembering it wrong, but all I can remember is him singing this song where it was like one note at the top of his range and he was straining the whole time and he never got off the note. Is there a song like that or have I invented that in I my head? I haven't seen it. I have right. not seen it. Right. Should I, really? I, it was really long. Uh, it was it was well done, but, I mean, like, Les Miserables, yeah, like, it's not one of my favourites. Um, I'm... Yeah, it was... Oh, yeah. a chink in your armour. <laughs> hey, speaking of musicals, yes. I went to see Matilda. How good was it? Seriously, it's such a great show. And it made me just think... Um, I took children and they loved it exactly as much as I expected and all that sort of thing. But it just made me think about Nick Minchin... Uh, Nick Minchin. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Minchin, one of our most colourful dreadlocked piano comedians. <laughs> All right. I, if that I was very often. I was wondering where you were going to go with that. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if I just walked out of there and thought, yes, I just, I can't stop thinking about that former industry minister. <laughs> Maybe think about Nick Minchin, Mrs. Trunchbull, I <laughs> thought was very Minchin-esque. Anyway, yeah. Ah, anyway, it made me think about Tim Minchin. It also made me sort of um, go back and comb YouTube for videos of him singing oh. songs, including him singing the song from Matilda, which immediately took root in my brain. Um, and which, interestingly, my eight-year-old girl was able to sing line for line after right. seeing the show. It was right. so catchy. Yeah, This right. is the one, When I Grow Up, yeah. which is just this absolutely typical Minchin song in that you listen to it, it's funny, but you also want to cry a bit. Mm. He is an absolute expert in that, um, that very precise science, I think. He's got, hasn't he got a good mix between... Because his stuff is very, very clever. Like mm. the rhymes and stuff are mm. really clever and also quite original and inventive. But he does get heart into things. It's not mm. just all a display of his yeah. dazzling cleverness. Yes, absolutely. And the sentiment is kind of, it's not, um, when he really turns it up, he can really, I mean, 
that, you know that song, White Wine in the Sun, mm. that you know every, anyone who lives uh, away from Australia at Christmas time, you know, listens to, and it is immediately reduced into <laughs> buckets of tears <laughs> and alcoholism. <laughs> um, but it, you know, he's such a genuine Australian genius. He really is. You know, he's just the freakiest guy. I was thinking he's kind of like you know a national penny black that we discovered in the in the attic. You know, I just mm. went, what's this? Oh, weird, but wow. Yeah. And he's, I really enjoy the fact that he is almost um, happened to Australia without Australia's real cooperation. You know, like yeah. he's just he's grown and grown and grown into this kind of international figure of genius. And everyone's just like, oh, yeah, I was that guy. Yeah, right, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How'd you get here? <laughs> yeah. He's... Um, yeah, he, he's, I think it was also an inspired choice, whoever decided to match him with Roald Dahl, because I just think that the sort of marriage of his way he uses language and that sort of sure. spikiness of his uh, approach to things and Roald Dahl was just absolutely But didn't perfect. he actually write a version of this as a teenager or something? He did, like, yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, and then they came back to him later when he was so successful. Have you ever seen somebody's done an animation over the top of a poem that he's done called Storm? No. Oh, it's so good. We'll put a link to it on www.chat10looks3.com. I see what you did there. Yes. Leave a review. Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's basically, it's the story of him going to a dinner party in London where this gorgeous hippie chick walks in and she starts talking about crystals and all these things that he has utter contempt yeah. for and how he's trying to bite his tongue and not explode and his wife's shooting him daggers over the table and it <laughs> tells the story of this. And whoever's done this animation, the animation's gorgeous and it's just funny and again clever and I can't do it justice by describing it it's absolutely fantastic but I also got to interview Tim Minchin for 7.30 really because I missed that you know what with your constant boasting on Twitter about you know oh I wrote this song for you Nick Minchin I can't stop I can't stop it's like having the hiccups I've never written a song for Nick Minchin but I will now that you've mentioned it do you have a hiccups cure just no yeah I've got a couple of really good ones oh I just it just occurred to me. Yeah. Okay, one, eat a teaspoonful of sugar. I've been told just that, yeah. Never Obviously tried. not one for Sarah Wilson. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, so and what's the, remedy, what's the remedy for Sarah? Or for Sarah, you bend over, right? I'm going to do it right. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's not, gonna, it's, not, it's not going the way you think it's going. Okay, get a glass of water, like yep. a small glass of water. Yeah. Bend over <laughs> so that you're... <laughs> your head is sort of at your knees and yep. your head is upside down. Yep. Like you're looking back yep. through your own knees. Yep. Drink the glass of water upside down. How do you do that? Well, look. Go and get one. Okay, I, I've got my <laughs> cup of tea here, right? Okay. So you drink it like that. Oh, that looks <laughs> awkward. Yeah. So the cup is the right way up. Right. Obviously. Right. Because gravity having <laughs> remained unchanged despite your weird contortions. And you're just like, you're resting the lip of the cup on your top lip. Right. Instead of your bottom. Right. And then you drink it upside down. Right. Swallow it. Right. When you resume an upright position, your hiccups will be gone. Really? You're welcome, Sarah Wilson. <laughs> wow. Um, and everyone around you has been very entertained and can Look, laugh it's best at your done antics. in private. Right. Anyway, sorry, back to... Uh, yeah, so, yeah, no, Tim and so dinner party with a hippie. Yes, hippie chick, this, and, this yeah, we did... Oh, did I mention I interviewed him on 7.30? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's so nice when you get to interview people, A, with whom you have rapport. Yeah. Um, I interviewed somebody else the other day, too, who I had immediate rapport with, which was this guy called Gideon Raff, who's an Israeli scriptwriter, 
And he wrote a show called Prisoners of War, which was then turned into Homeland for the US uh, market. And he was right, also the screenwriter right. on that. Yep. I hated Homeland, but Prisoners of War, oh, it is awesome. I just finished season two on the weekend. Oh, okay. Absolutely loved it. Very, very compelling. To the degree that the main characters, Uri and Nimrod, I was like really emotionally invested in them, like they were real people. It was amazing. Anyway, so um, Gideon Raff, who was out here for the Melbourne Writers' Festival, was on the satellite in Melbourne, and mm -hmm. I was in the Sydney studio, and I didn't realise my microphone was yet switched through to him, and I had a new jacket on, and I was saying to the director, do you think it looks like a tablecloth? I think it looks a little bit like a tablecloth. I don't know about this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we were sort of horsing around about it. Um, and then she said, you know, Gideon, I said, can I talk to Gideon Raff yet? And she said, yes. And then Gideon Raff just said, it doesn't look like a tablecloth. It looks really nice. <laughs> so then we just had this lovely sort of rapport straight off the top. Yeah. And it just made... And, and the topic of what he was discussing, which was how he had had to... The premise of the show, people talk about when people are prisoners of war and then they get to come home. And when they get to come home, it's the end of the story. He mm. said, that's really the beginning of a story, mm. which is how you adjust to then not being in captivity. And he said, for a lot of these people, actually, they bring the captivity with them yeah. and so he had heaps of interesting stuff to say and he was talking about how Americans have a different approach to prisoners of war than Israel did and he was talking about a few years ago there was an American prisoner of war that the Taliban had and had for four years yeah. and he said most Americans just would have had no idea that this guy was even being held whereas he said in Israel it's really front and centre yeah. partly because military service is compulsory so people who are prisoners of war become you know really famous yeah and there's daily dialogue about trades and yeah you know. so it's just it was really interesting to get to it's not i love when i get to get out of the beat of politicians and business people and actually talk to people who are creating and hear something that makes you think something different yeah, yeah. and i hadn't really ever thought about oh, i wonder what happens to people when they come home after having been a prisoner of war but yeah it was very interesting hmm. um how did you went to the melbourne writers festival didn't you Yes, I did. How was yeah. it? Oh, well, I did a session um, with Kate Granville mm -hmm. about her book One Life, which we've talked about, and she was so great. She really she's is. She's excellent, yeah. isn't she? She's such, I don't know, you do get to meet these um, writers who you've read and kind of heard about and admired, and then suddenly there they are in front of you, and um, she was... Um, she was great. I really enjoyed that session, and... Um, did you like the book? Yeah, I really like the book. I really like the book. I love the idea of she's paid this inordinate tribute to her mother who she says, look, no one would write a book about my mother, like Richard Nixon. No one would write a book about my mother. Um, but she said, look, my mother's story, um, her mother was um, uh, married, had children, um, was a qualified pharmacist, which was unusual for her um, generation, struggled... Um, made a way through life um, and, you know, died happy, effectively. Um, Kate Grenville said, even though her life was really, you know, unremarkable to an extent, I wanted to immortalise her to recognise the lives that women of that period had um, that might otherwise be forgotten. And what emerges is this work of incredible tenderness, even though Kate um, doesn't put herself in it very much. Um, it's such a special sort of um, tribute to pay to a parent, I think. There's this other book I read a couple of years ago by a woman called Christina Olsen. She's a like quite well-known Australian writer, but she wrote a book called Boy Lost, which is all about um, her mother, who um, married very, very young, had... Um, uh, 
a baby very young to um, an abusive husband who then, when her mother tried to leave, stormed onto the train where she was literally poised for escape with her infant son and snatched the baby who then her mother just didn't see again. Mm. You know? um, and it's a portrait of her mother's experience and how much she missed that child and then what happened to that child who was the author's brother, of course. It's an extraordinary book and mm. the most tender kind of work and it makes me think that to write about, write objectively about your own parent without sort of really putting yourself in the story um, must be an incredibly hard thing to do but also mm. just the ultimate literal labour of love. Yeah, it would be, I think it'd be really hard to do. And also, Kate Grimble's mother, I think, had died by the time the book came out, hadn't she? She didn't yeah. see the book. Um, she was working from these little handwritten scraps. Oh, that's right. Her She'd mother had always wanted to write a book and um, there's had a, a great few stubs scrap it. that says, in her mother's handwriting, I've always wanted to write a book, but I've never had quite enough time or exactly the right pencil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. That would have been the perfect opening line for her memoir. It was yeah. fantastic. Um, I would, I would think that the pressure of trying to do that would be even worse if the person were still alive. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you can take, I mean, on one hand, you can't check everything with them, but also you can make the assumptions, I suppose, about your parents that you might silently have made in life, but didn't mm. want to make them cross. One of the things that I reckon would be really awful if you were a very famous person would be if you were profiled by somebody who was a stellar profile writer, like, oh, say, God. Helen Garner or David Laser oh. or some of the people who write for The New Yorker, because you know that they are going to get to the truth of you as a person, and I reckon that would be really uncomfortable oh, to lock read. lock the doors. Lock the doors. Yeah. Make your own death, I reckon. Yeah. A genuinely fabulous profile, it turns up. No way. David Laser, I'm not accepting your phone calls. <laughs> Helen Garner, I would accept her call, but, you know, only on I'd accept her call to go to lunch, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. not to write a piece about me. <laughs> um, now, we're nearly out of time. I oh, know. That's terrible. I know. Um, hey, listen. Yes? If we've got to the bitty bobs section where we're just going, throwing things yeah. at each other yes. um, randomly. Um, I um, had dinner with my friend Annie the other night and her sister, mm -hmm. um, Margaret, who um, put me on to a new podcast which you'll probably be aware of because you're the queen of podcasts. But it's kind of a serial, um, it's not the sequel to Serial. Mm. It's another podcast about Anand Syed. Oh, okay. Right. And it's called Undisclosed. Oh, yeah, I've seen that on the podcast chart. Yeah. Right. Okay, so what it is is Rabia, who's the cousin yeah. of Adnan Syed, yeah. who put the... Um, I remember, yeah. Who put Sarah Koenig onto the whole story mm. initially, has now put together her own podcast, which she's made with... Two lawyers who she hadn't met before um, this whole serial thing happened, but has sort of hooked up with since. Right. And they have been studying this case in incredible forensic detail. Because you know how Sarah Koenig says at the beginning of serial, look, I'm not a lawyer, I'm right. not an investigator, this is what I'm doing as a journalist. You know? Right. Well, these people are lawyers and they are what they're doing is going through in minute detail all of these all of the evidence and new evidence that they've found. Um, and it is incredibly gripping. It's wow. different from, from Cyril. So the first episode goes for about 40 minutes an episode too, so you get an extra content. <laughs> right. But what they're doing is, like the first episode is Adnan's day. Mm -hmm. They've gone back and 
gathered all of the evidence that's to hand and they've talked to other people to try and reconstruct that day with a forensic um, attention that the initial investigators obviously just didn't have. So it's like, it's much richer in detail. Mm. It's really, I'm hooked already. And wow. I'm only, I'm only listening to the second episode now. Oh, so it's okay. called Undisclosed. Okay, I'll keep an eye for that. Speaking of podcasts, I listened on the weekend just to one episode of a podcast that has a lot of episodes. It's called Slate's Working. It's because oh, you know the yeah. website Slate has a lot of different yeah, podcasts. Yeah. So this one's called Working. Um, episode one was Stephen Colbert talking about his day oh. when he was doing the Colbert Report. Oh, so oh. it's just a profile of what people do in their yeah. working days. What, what, what how does a, in the episode to things like, what does a funeral director do? What does a pastor do? What does a this That's do? That's such a good idea. Yeah, really good idea. And anyway, so the first one was, it must have evolved, I guess, maybe initially they were thinking about what certain famous people do, and now mm. it's just generic. But anyway, the Stephen Colbert one, I just felt it was riveting how they put the show together, but also the amount of work was just gobsmacking, yeah. like how much work Stephen Colbert's doing over the course of a day and how he has to shift his head from writer-producer mode to performer mm. mode and getting into the character and what's involved with that. And it was just so, so interesting. I highly recommend it. Didn't you go to the Colbert Report? I or the did. Daily? Oh, yeah. yeah. What yeah. was that like, just to watch it in the audience? Um, I went and sort of um, met one of the writers there and hung out there a little bit and then went to a, um, you know, a taping of the show. And just funny people, mm. clever, funny people. Mm. Well, that was what came through with this podcast. He, he was, you know, a just avid consumer of news. And he explained it so well because he talked about, say, The Daily Show. He said, The Daily Show is in the business of they deconstruct the news. Mm. He said, we are in the business of we deconstruct the news and then we reconstruct it for my fake character. Yeah. So he had to talk about how we've only got so much time in the day to break the news down because yeah. then we have to rebuild a, a narrative and find, you know, a conspiracy theory or something of the type of thing that my character would believe in. And then he talked about how they workshop what actually works and what doesn't. And this is a five-day-a-week show. You know, Unbelievable. Just absolutely. He's a genius. He really is. The, other, um, the thing that I also really like about that show, um, that late show, um, is that you know how like all media at some point runs into um, deadline issues? You know, things happen before your deadline and you can cover them, but after them um, you can't. And with, the, with shows like The Daily Show and Colbert, they actually record it at, you know, 7 p.m. and then it goes to air at you know 11 or whatever. Mm. So there's actually a horrible gap between mm. when they film it and when it happens. So when the State of the Union happens, you know, like it happens after they have taped but before they go to air. Yeah. And one of the things I really admire about those shows is they constantly there's a kind of um, uh, postmodern awareness of that in the show. Like they'll say when they're broadcasting about the State of the Union, well, there's an event that's just happened. It's still a mystery to me. <laughs> <laughs> Because the audience kind of knows that that's the way they roll. I really like that, where you can just break down and ignore or um, lampoon these kind of um, barriers that still exist um, to your capacity he, to... He sounded like a tremendously show. nice chat too, Stephen Colbert. Yeah, do you know, like, the he was very attentive to the audience. That's something that I noticed when I went up there, is that, you know how if you're about to start performing, some people like to sit under a, you know... Um, pyramid or, mm. you know, anoint themselves with eau de cologne or whatever. That's what but, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's why I mention it. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, he just comes out and actually really does engage with the audience quite generously. It's um, he said in the podcast he lets them ask questions yeah. of him yeah. before he starts. Yeah. Um, he also said this great little thing that I thought, God, that's professional and amazing. He said. Right before they start the proper role, mm. the makeup artist comes out to give him one more touch-up and he said they've got this thing that they do every night where she's sort of patting his hair and then he said he reaches his hand behind and starts patting her hair and it's like they're going to kiss. And he said, if the audience laughs, I know that they're engaged and they're paying attention and that oh I've got them. God. If the audience misses that and they don't react, I know I have to work that little bit harder to grab them off the top. Wow, the hair litmus test. Isn't that amazing? That is fascinating. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go So it's full of, full of moments like that. So. Um, radio, well... Uh, is, that, is that it? Yeah, I think oh, okay. so. Um, can, can I, I add give you... Else? Well, yeah. uh, look, there's a bunch of other things, but um, we always have to draw the line somewhere. Um, can I just recommend... Uh, a cookbook that I've really, even though I've been kind of all over the place, I've been doing a lot of um, guilt baking for <laughs> my children, and I have just about guilt baked my way through the Cook the Baker, which is oh, this new book okay. out. Um, it's apparently it's a cafe or something in Bondi Junction. Right. I have never been there because right. I never go to cafes, unfortunately. Um, never heard of it. Cherie Bevan and Tass Tauroa are the um, people that run this um, place, yes. and the cookbook is so great oh. so it's um it, it's it's not a health book there's uh you know there's just butter and sugar on every page which is what i kind of quite like about it love. there is a recipe for chocolate salted caramel brownies which is just yum out of control and there's something here? called the i've got no snacks sorry all i've got is tea bags um, yeah. which you're welcome to gnaw on if you'd like um and there's a um Oaty ginger crunch, which I actually dropped around to your house when you were vomiting. Yes, in the you the other did, day. and I couldn't. The other thing was, I kept sort of looking at it in the fridge and thinking, oh, "Am I ready? Surely yet? not. Yeah, am I ready? Am I ready? Is that the sort of thing that's going to go off? You know, I don't think so. I think I'm right to leave it there for a few so days. Gingerly. So I sort of tentatively, because there's nothing worse than hosting a live television show when you've got a bout of gastro. Let me assure you, and so you're very, very tentative about what you put in your mouth. Um, anyway, I ended up having half of one of them on a day when I had to come to work. Oh, delicious. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Um, is there some condensed milk on the top? What was the... There's so much ginger. Yeah, I know. It was very gingery. It was yeah. beautiful. No, the icing... Oh, I can't even remember. It's quite caramelly. It ended up come yeah. tasting quite... It was almost a little bit slight fudgy texture, you know, that sugary it's sort of... Like a, it's like a fudge. It's this... Anyway, oh, my God. It, it was, was very... It's a standout deliciousness thing. Yes, I I Everything it. in that cookbook is worth doing, I reckon. Yeah. So, um, oh, good. Okay, well, I'm I borrow that from you. Copy. I mean, you will, we will buy multiple copies. Well, because, you know, because I'm moving house and I have to ah. be house-sitting for five weeks so I'm homeless for a period of time, um, I made the decision to pack away all my baking stuff. I thought, can I... I'll just do without that for two months, so I'm not doing... Any baking. All right, well, I've dropped some round. Cool. Excellent. All right, well, thanks for listening. I'm sorry we took so long to do this, and I hope we can get together again, yep. but I can't make any promises necessarily because... Next week? You said you're travelling. I am, but only for a couple of days of next week. All right, or the interval at the theatre on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> See ya.